Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As we continue our Women's History Month observance, today we'll listen back to an interview about the legendary film critic Pauline Kael with director Rob Garver. His documentary on Kael's life and writing is titled What She Said. And author Anna Malika Tubbs, her recent book, The Three Mothers, explores the lives of the mothers of MLK, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. First, an Atlanta fashion designer's creation now has a powerful connection to history. Jasmine Elder was selected by the artist Amy Sherald to design the dress for Sherald's portrait of Breonna Taylor. The portrait appeared on the cover of Vanity Fair in September. Later this year, the painting will hang in the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, and talks are underway for the work to be a joint acquisition with Louisville Speed Art Museum. The Atlanta-born designer is with us now. Jasmine Elder, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me, Lois. Before we discuss the now famous dress you created for Amy Sherald's portrait of Breonna Taylor. Would you tell us about your journey to creating your fashion line, Jibri? Sure. I've always been a crafty person. I've been making my own clothes since I was about 12 or 13 years old. And when I got to high school, I, I met a friend who introduced me to a established designer by the name of Jabri Mann. He had a boutique over in Little Five Points called Funky Town. And he kind of transformed my thought process on how to create garments. And he taught me, you know, just the fundamentals on it. And when I, he got me to New York, basically for college, it was his recommendation that I go there just to expand my, my mind. And um, I moved to New York. He passed away. I, I didn't even know I would ever have a line, but if I did, it would be named after him. So many years later, after, and I've been making my clothes all throughout college and early adulthood, someone asked, hey, where'd you get that? Where do you get your clothes? And people just started to ask me that all the time. So I decided, well, maybe I should try to sell them. And um, Etsy, which is like a marketplace, I'm sure you know Etsy, like a hand, handmade marketplace. Etsy was around around that time. So I tried a little shop on there and just sold one or two pieces. And it grew into a line for plus-size women. Wow. Why was it especially important for you to create a fashion line for plus-size women? Well, again, I was my own first client. I've been plus-size my entire, probably midway through teenage years and my entire adult life. So I needed clothes to wear for myself. And I mean, the plus-size market is very different now, but 15, 20 years ago, I really didn't have a lot of options that matched my personality or my moods. So I was my own client. It made sense for it to be for women of um, 
a certain size. So at that time, I was just doing from like a size 14 to like a 22 or 24. And I've expanded a little bit now. So I go from a 10 to a 28. Yeah. That's good. And, and you celebrate the curvy figure. I like the way that's put. Yeah. Uh, what, what did plus size fashion lack that Jabri fills in? A glamour, I would think. I was, I've always been a lover of fashion beyond size. So old movies and, you know, wardrobing for black and white films that my mom used to watch. I love the shape, the, create, the creation of breast, waist, hips, the hourglass figure, even on a thinner model, a thinner woman. It was always that accent, which is a part of what I create now. And they just that just wasn't there. So most of the plus size clothing around the time that I began buying my own clothes, it there was no no silhouette to it really, in my opinion. Or the the silhouette wasn't one that I was comfortable with at 21 years old, maybe. Mm-hmm. So so I added just glamour, like the things that I saw in New York, the things I saw women wearing every day that weren't my, they were smaller than me, but it just matched my lifestyle a little bit better. So I just wanted to give that glamour to plus women as well. That glamour, that greater range of design is really important to enriching our understanding of celebrating all body types. I mean, Hollywood has not made great strides, though there are baby steps we're seeing toward different types of bodies appearing. Not all of the women look emaciated. If you could work with any celebrity, I I ask this because you've worked with some impressive ones so far. Jill Scott especially jumped out at me. I love her. If you could work with any other celebrities who you haven't collaborated with so far, who would that be? Well, I have worked with this person before, but I would kind of want to do over Lizzo. I did some a piece for her for, I think it was Bus Magazine a few years ago, but it was before she, you know, was introduced to the world really. And I didn't know her personality yet. And I would love to take, cause I, I love costumes as well. So it wouldn't necessarily be a part of the regular debris line, but it would have, it would give me a chance to play around with some stage costumes. So I would say Lizzo, I, I would like, that would just be like a super fun project for me. Yeah. yeah. The famous portrait, Amy Sherald's painting of Brianna Taylor that appeared on the cover of Vanity Fair. How did the collaboration between you and the artists come about? It was super organic. It seems organic. I, I guess I'll just tell you how it happened. When Amy got the commission, I guess, from Vanity Fair, she made a decision on wanting to work with a Black designer and also a designer that would have created something that Brianna could have worn in life. So she didn't want to just choose a dress, any old dress. She wanted it to be something she could actually fit. And when she started looking around for designers, just in a plus size Google search, basically, I was like one of the two or three that she found in her search. I mean, I think she found a lot, a long list, but I must have been up there in the top ones that she found. So she sent an email as herself and just said, hey, would you be interested in a Vanity Fair cover? I'm like, uh, yeah. I didn't know what it was for. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it, was, it was really easy. It wasn't. I do projects all the time that are far less um, exciting as that one and are way more work, may, way more, uh, you know, little details. It was really easy to work with her and an and honor to work with her. I read that it was important to Amy that the designer be of African-American heritage. She thought this is something historic. This is appropriate. And your line, Chabri, came up high on that list. Would you describe the dress Brianna Taylor's wearing for those who may not have seen the painting or the magazine cover? Sure. The color, actually, Amy 
kind of altered the color a little bit. The, uh, the dress I actually made was a little bit greener. It's a silk crepe dress, a bat wing, it has a V-neck, it's flowy, it has lots of life, lots of movement in it. Um, it did have like a couple of splits on the on the front panels that we actually widened <laughs> for Brianna's age. Just something that would have been something a 26-year-old woman would have been comfortable wearing. So it's, it's a fun, vibrant piece, vibrant colors, flowy, and it just accented her skin tone beautifully and her, and her spirit. Amy Sherrill said she she was channeling Brianna to tell her what color yeah. you should make the dress. And somehow blue came about and Brianna's birthstone, her birthday would have been in March, was aquamarine. Right. Yeah, she told me that. She did. We played around with white. We played with um, orange. And the colors that were in that bluish green color, color fields, were the ones she was most attracted to for the piece. In the Vanity Fair profile of Amy Sherald, she says that she wanted Brianna's family to look at this and say, I can see my daughter and sister wearing this. How did that make you feel? It was a bittersweet feeling. Of course, I was very touched to be a part of it. And I work with women every day who are connecting to their garments in a particular way. I definitely wanted it to be something that a, a younger woman would be more comfortable in. I, I wanted it to be something that her mom would love and her fiance would love because I knew for this painting, it was going to be like her forever dress. By adding the engagement ring to her hand in the painting, the engagement ring her fiance never got to give her, Amy Sherald said she felt she was providing a future for Brianna Taylor. Do you have a similar sense having created this dress? I do. Like overall, after I saw the work finished and even knowing what I was creating when I was making the dress, I knew it was going to be, like I said, this forever moment for her family and for the world. I didn't know that it would be in you know, the Smithsonian or anything like that, but I wanted it to be like it's just a step up because you know when you're 26 you're still wearing you know party clothes or whatever I know this wouldn't be her everyday look it would be like a special moment dress if she was going somewhere you know maybe somewhere fancy just in her in her age range so when she added the ring it kind of put like a different story like was this her engagement party where was she going where you know but this was a a moment that she would have wanted to to capture and so I Uh think that Amy Amy did a beautiful job in doing that. How do you feel about your garment being on display in the esteemed National Museum of African American History and Culture? I'm super honored. I'm I'm honored to have even been a part of the project at all. I felt helpless as an outsider when I heard about this case, just as a regular person. So, of course, when I was invited to participate in the project at all, I was, it was like my moment to get to speak to it, my moment to, to help do something about it in my own way. So to just be a part of like her moment, her final appearance to the world in this painting is something that it touches my, my heart forever. I'll always be honored. Jasmine Elder is an Atlanta-based fashion designer and founder of the clothing line Jabri. You can see an image of Amy Sherald's portrait of Brianna Taylor on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. 
And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Malika Tubbs has a groundbreaking perspective in her new book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. The author joins us now via Zoom. Anna Malika Tubbs, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Alberta King, Louise Little, and Bertis Baldwin. Why are their names barely familiar, though their sons shaped the course of American history in the 20th century? That is the question that really has guided my research. It's really a crime that we've erased their lives and forgotten their names or never learned their names at all. Especially as I show through the book, they were so influential on their sons' lives. Their sons gave their mothers credit for so much of what they were able to accomplish for our world. And they were important even before they had these sons. They were artists, they were activists, writers. Uh, They all had their own passions and talents and were contributing to the Black freedom movement in their own ways. And it's just time that the world know their names. So I'm really, I feel honored that I get to be the person who introduces them in many ways to a larger audience who should have known them all along. Yeah. Ana, you have an impressive academic background with Stanford and Cambridge degrees. Thank you. You are, yeah, you're a PhD candidate in sociology at Cambridge University now. Yes. Would you talk about the role of this book on the three mothers in terms of your research? Absolutely. I started the research as part of my PhD program. Uh, It's actually very similar to my dissertation. They're different in the sense that the dissertation has a lot more theory. It's kind of more dry, not as interesting to read, Um, but (laughs) it allowed me to really explore liberatory motherhood theory and a lot of these sociological concepts around motherhood. But I really knew as I was starting that research that I wanted to join other scholars that were correcting the erasure of Black women's lives. I was extremely inspired by authors like Margot Lee Shetterly, as well as Isabel Wilkerson, uh, Brittany Cooper, and their ability to show how important it is to understand Black American history and Black American lives in order to understand American history and where we are as a country today. So having that theoretical background is definitely helpful. But I should note that the book really does not read like a dissertation. I tried my best. I'm also a fiction writer. So I definitely bring in that creative writing and it's it's enjoyable to read, if I can say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't say these three women didn't contribute to history. The contributions of MLK, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin are very distinct from one another. How did each mother's background inform the work of their sons? Yes, I'll introduce them each briefly. I'll start with Alberta King. I'll just go alphabetically by their first names. Alberta was born to two parents who really made Ebenezer Baptist what it is today. When they started at the church, there were only about 14 members. And from there, they grew it to be this beacon of hope in the upcoming civil rights movement. They were boycotting papers that disparaged Black community members. They protested until the first Black public high school was opened in Atlanta. They used, you know, these very peaceful ways of demonstrating, even though they weren't using the same words like nonviolence. These were the lessons that they taught their daughter, that faith was not faith without a commitment to social justice and fulfilling that here on earth in the way that Jesus would want us to. And so this is what Alberta believes through and through. She's the daughter of Ebenezer Baptist Church. She teaches others around her. She's this beautiful, incredible instrumentalist, and she's brilliant and gets a college degree. And even when she meets her husband, Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., 
at the time, he's considered illiterate when he meets her. They're around the same age, but he doesn't have the same opportunities that she does. And she helps him get into Morehouse and she tutors him through his education. So even his path as a reverend really can't be completed without his wife. And we see that in his autobiography. He thanks her for that. It's a love letter to his wife because he knows without her, his life would have been completely different. So then of course we have the introduction of MLK Jr who follows in his maternal steps and his maternal grandparents steps and his mother's steps. Of course, he has influence from his father. I'm not trying to erase the father at all. But I also want to make sure that we complete the puzzle without knowing about Alberta's life. You really don't understand where MLK Jr. came up with all of these ideas around nonviolence and this kind of disciplined approach to what he saw as the way to to accomplish black freedom. I'll leave Alberta King there for now. Louise Little, oh sorry, Bertus Baldwin to go alphabetical. <laughs> she was born in Deal Island, Maryland, tiny, tiny town. It was really difficult to find a lot of information because smaller places aren't as well recorded in history. But what we know is that she was born to a kind of tragic situation. She never got to know her mother very well. In my own research, I actually think her mother passed away in childbirth. Um, I can't confirm that 100%, but her death certificate says that she died the same month and year that Bertus was born from hemorrhaging. And of course, this is not uncommon. Um, and still is not uncommon today for Black mothers to lose their lives in childbirth, tragically. And so Bertus, in this moment of darkness and pain, really finds light, love, and hope. That's what she chooses to focus on. And everyone who knew her says that this is something she carries forward through the rest of her life, that you have to confront the darkness. You can't necessarily run or hide from it, but you also can't hold on to pain or hatred. You have to focus on moving forward and being kind of a witness to the power of light. And of course, we see so much of that in James Baldwin's works. He even calls himself a witness to the power of light and love. And he saw himself as being completely interconnected with his mother. Even when he died, you know, one of his dying wishes was that he would have a double plot grave so that when she passed away after him, she would be buried right next to him. So if you go and visit his grave, it's this shared plaque that says her name in one corner, his in the other, and Baldwin right in the middle. She had eight other children. So to speak about the, the closeness of these two and not know her name and think that you're a fan of James Baldwin, again, you're missing even what he saw as one of the most important parts of his life, his relationship with his mother. What should we know about Bertus Baldwin's love for language? Yes, she was a writer, this incredible, again, brilliant writer. At first, when I started the research, I you know, didn't know much about the women, of course. I was finding all these needles and haystacks and trying to put the pieces of their lives together. And I wasn't sure if she was even educated. Of course, this was a privilege at the time. They were all born in the early 1900s. And I asked her family members that were willing to speak with me, I said, you know, I'm sorry if this is a sensitive question, but was she educated? And immediately they all said, oh my goodness, yes, absolutely. She was the most brilliant writer that we ever knew. All of her letters were filled with this language that was metaphor and simile and inspiring, again, with these messages of love and hope and light. And even the principals at James Baldwin schools commented on the fact that her letters excusing his absences were beautifully written. I don't know how you write a beautiful <laughs> note that's excusing an absence, but the fact that it was noteworthy really speaks to her, her use of language. Yeah, you, you point out that she wrote poetry. So this gorgeous lyrical quality to James Baldwin's writing, he came by from his mother. Yes, yes, his talent. So with the sons, it's, it's not only the lessons that they learn, it's not only the way they approach their lives and approach the freedom struggle, it's also their direct talents and skills that are inherited from their mothers. And then now it's to move forward with Louise Little. She was born outside of the country. She was born in Grenada. Her family is really powerful, strong. They teach her about her many different cultures, Carib Indian culture, West African culture, all about these fighters against colonizers, white supremacy, and how they believe that you stand up for your rights no matter what. And you don't allow others to, to tell you that you're less than. 
and you're, you have to confront your fear. And so she travels at the age of 17. She leaves Grenada on her own and joins this Marcus Garvey Pan-African movement in Montreal, Canada. So he's becoming this international orator, speaking all about Black independence, Black self-sufficiency, fighting against the notion of assimilation. And she wants to join that. And so she, as a writer herself, she wants to contribute her talents to this larger fight for Black lives. And she joins the movement in Montreal where she meets her husband. And there's more that I could say, of course, uh, their parallels continue. But when we talk about Malcolm X, he didn't just wake up thinking, this is my approach to the movement. Instead, he said, this is how my parents taught me to think about the importance of Black pride. Black unity uh, and not assimilating to white culture, instead being proud of who we are as individuals and as an individual community. One of the things I found fascinating that you wrote was about how Louise Little expanded the education of her children. Would you talk about that briefly? Yes, I love that as well. She was very aware that the world was trying to control her children's minds and that as Black children, there were going to be multiple different ways that people would try to attack her kids. One of those ways was through making them think that they were less than by what they were taught from what perspective. And so every time her children come back from school, she has this routine where they sit down at the kitchen table. She's put newspaper clippings out from three different newspapers um, from around the world. And also to allow them to know that this struggle for Black freedom is something that's international. It's not only happening in the States, but that they're part of something much, much larger and that they have to contribute to that as well. But they read out loud these papers and if they don't know any of the words, she stops them and makes sure that they go to the dictionary learn the word, and then come back and continue their reading. So even when we think about Malcolm X later, when this kind of famous story of him writing every word from the dictionary down when he's in prison and then later in a reformatory program, we missed part of the puzzle, which is actually that his brother reminded him, and there's a letter where he says, remember what mom taught us. And that's when he says, I'm going to go back to this practice of the dictionary and does the thing that he'd been doing with her since he was a little boy. Why have these mothers been ignored or omitted from historic consideration? There's a lot that I could say about that. I think that as Black women, we still feel this kind of erasure to this day. Many put so much pressure on our shoulders and so much burden to take care of others, but we're never thanked for the work that we do. Instead, we're only blamed if something goes quote unquote wrong. We don't talk about the circumstances that have pushed Black families into situations that we don't want to be in. And instead, quite often we've blamed Black mothers. This happened with the Moynihan Report in you know, the 60s, it happened with so many different tropes that tried to vilify Black mothers and Black women, like the Jezebel trope and the Mammy and the matriarch and the welfare queen that just continue to erase our humanity. And by not knowing their stories today, it's a continued part of this dehumanization and this erasure. And I really think it comes down to a lack of appreciation for the work that Black women have done, not only for our families, but for this entire nation. What does the proximity and age of the three mothers allow you to explore? Yes, that's actually how I narrowed down who I was going to write about. Uh, I had so many different options in terms of people who I felt very inspired by and mothers that I could write about. I think that there's endless amounts of stories left to tell, and I hope more of them will be told now. But I ended up deciding on these three because the mothers were all born within six years of each other. And then the sons were all born, the famous sons were all born within five years of each other later in the twenties. And that allowed me to also offer a perspective of a century of American history through the lives and the experiences of black women and to see the world through their eyes. So I could talk about, and which is what I do in the book, I give clear historic examples so that we can think about how each world war affected them differently, how the Great Depression affected them, how, you know, the Cold War, how each president and their policies 
impacted their lives differently. And I give this new approach to our, our country's history and a new understanding for how we arrived where we are today. Two of these women lost young sons to violent death. The loss of a child is irreconcilable to a parent. These sons were murdered. How did the mothers continue their lives? It's heartbreaking. And even before I speak about that ability to continue, I want to note how important it was to me that we also understand the humanity of the sons. We've thought about them as these historic figures. And I think in a lot of ways, we forget that they were human beings with their own feelings, with their own families, how painful it was for them to even do their work day in and day out and risk their lives for the rest of us. But it's something that's important to pay attention to. All three of the mothers outlived their sons. MLK Jr., Malcolm X, yes, were shot when they were so young, really at the prime of their lives. Their families were very young. Their children were very young. And the mothers really saw their role almost change a little bit, that they now needed to be part of their grandchildren's journeys and they needed to educate the next generation of their families and continue the legacy that they'd pass on to their children and that their children had now passed back to them in passing. They found it important to continue that work, to focus again on moving forward. With Alberta, she had to focus on her faith. And this was what she preached her whole life, that this was part of God's plan, even if she didn't understand it. It's something I also wish I'd known more about if we could find letters that the mothers wrote themselves or had heard more from their perspective, because I think we assume many times, even today, that these Black mothers have this supernatural strength. And so we focus more on, wow, they were able to push forward and look how strong they were. But I'm sure that there was much more to it. I'm sure there was much more conflict, much more sadness, much more anger than they allowed others to see. Anger and anguish. Anna, how has honoring these three mothers informed your own motherhood? It's been really a powerful and very epic journey, uh, not only completing this book, but I also became a mother through this whole process. I was in the middle of my research when I found out I was expecting my son. Part of that, of course, very exciting. I was overwhelmed with joy, but any mother knows that you also are, are overwhelmed with fear. You start to worry about everything that could hurt your child, and especially as a Black woman in the United States where really you are risking your life in a lot of ways, no matter how educated you are, no matter how much income you have, you're more likely to die in childbirth and in pregnancy if you're a black woman in the United States. That fear is something that I was able to confront by spending this time learning about Alberta Burtis and Louise's lives. They never gave up. They never accepted these things as inevitable lots but instead said, we are part of transforming this world for ourselves and for our children. And our children will join us in making that change something that's possible and bringing our vision of what's possible in our nation to life, making that reality. So that was inspiring for me. It allowed me to see motherhood as something that's powerful, influential, so many mothers comment on the fact that they really feel they lose their identities and people don't appreciate them anymore and they don't pay attention to them as individuals. They don't care what their own passions were anymore. And I could see in these three women how they were able to keep their own identities alive and make sure that their sons knew that they were human beings as well. They had this balance of both vulnerability as well as strength. But I feel that their ability to be honest with their children also allowed these sons to have a very deep understanding of the human condition and was also a, an important component of their ability to, to transform the systems that they were able to impact for all of us. So yeah, I, would, I guess to summarize it, it made me feel strong. It made me feel hopeful, even in those moments of fear. Anna Malika Tubbs, her new book is The Three Mothers, how the mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin shaped a nation. 
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. What she said, The Art of Pauline Kael, is a documentary about the life and work of the legendary New Yorker film critic. Last year, I spoke with the director, Rob Garver, from NPR in New York. When Garver began reading Pauline Kael's reviews as a student, he said it was like listening to a pop song for the first time and immediately wanting to hear more. I was a young person when I first read her. I was in high school or college in the early 80s, and she was like a pop song because her writing was so vivid and so funny and insightful and witty, and sometimes her writing was better than the movie itself that she was (laughs) writing about. That always stayed with me. She was very different from other critics. I've told people that she was not a film critic. She was a writer, and her subject was movies. She put all of herself into it, and that's what made her so different. I had the idea to make this movie about five years ago, and it was that voice of Pauline's that was so individual that always stuck with me. And what I really wanted to try to do was to bring her voice alive in my movie. Would you talk about the role of Sarah Jessica Parker? Yes, Sarah Jessica performs Pauline's writing, so there are about 10 or 15 different short passages in the movie where Sarah Jessica is actually reading from Pauline's work, performing it, really. She does kind of a a hybrid between herself and Pauline, and I think she does a great job. But when I uh, got to the point where we needed to record Pauline, I knew I didn't want to use a narrator, and I knew I didn't want to use titles on the screen. I think they're boring. And I really wanted to make Pauline come alive through an actress. Sarah Jessica being associated with New York, as Pauline was, although both of them are not from New York, I knew she could do that kind of a job. She's urban. Sex in the City was always introduced and left off with her voiceover from her column of her character in the show. And she ended up doing a great job. And she also had a personal connection with Pauline. She read her as a young person like I did. Actually, Pauline's last published review was of the Steve Martin movie called L.A. Story, which Sarah Jessica is in. And she praised her. She did. She played kind of a nymphet in that movie, and Pauline says she's the girl who keeps saying yes. <laughs> I think that was the last line of Pauline's review. I, too, read Pauline Kael as a very young person and continued to and can still recall so many things from her reviews. It's astonishing to think about the power that she wielded. Yeah, I agree. This was the pre-digital age, pre-internet age, and she wrote professionally from the early 50s until the early 90s. So her career really ended just before the digital technology came on. Jurassic Park was a couple of years away, and the internet was a couple of years away. And she wrote when really the only way you could see a movie was by going to a movie theater. A, A lot of her writing was in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s before the advent of VCRs. So that was part of her thrust as a writer is that she really wanted to get the experience that she was feeling in a theater and communicate that on the page. And that's another aspect of her writing that made her so good, I think. Pauline Kael is remembered as this formidable critic whose name is synonymous with The New Yorker. Would you describe her career leading up to The New Yorker years? Sure. It was very rocky. She really didn't hit her stride until her 30s. She was born in 1919, so she grew up in Petaluma in San Francisco. Her father was um, a chicken farmer, part of a Jewish community, and chicken farms in Petaluma, that didn't work out. They moved to San Francisco. She grew up, went to Berkeley. She always knew she wanted to be a writer. She was always a voracious reader, always a voracious consumer of culture, of movies, of theater, of music, of art, and all of it really almost in equal levels. She just wanted to consume everything her whole life. But she didn't find her niche until the early 50s when she was in a coffee shop and talking about Limelight, the Chaplin movie, and the publisher of a San Francisco magazine called City Lights 
overheard her and said, well, would you like to write a review of Chaplin's Limelight? It turned out to be two reviews, one pro and one con, and Pauline was the con. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how it began. She said, I don't care if he's a genius. I don't like that man. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that was that's almost exactly what she wrote. How did um, being a Californian inform her identity? Well, that's a big part of her story because she was always in California except for a few years after college when she came to New York and tried to make her bones as a writer and it really didn't have any success and she tried playwriting, she wrote a couple of spec teleplays I think for early television. But she went back to California, and she wrote a couple of book reviews, and then she started writing film reviews and was really writing for the magazines like Sight and Sound and Film Comment, magazines that were devoted only to film. And her bent really was that San Francisco was a smaller place then, I think, and she was always writing against New York and against the New York critics, which is kind of ironic because she ended up being a New York critic herself, but... It was this us-and-them kind of dynamic with her where Bosley Crowther, who was the New York Times critic, would write a fawning review of a movie that she didn't like very much, and she would go through his and other reviews point by point. And she was really kind of like a prize fighter. She was taking on people, and she really made her bones that way. And after about 10 years, she got an offer from Life magazine, and she moved to New York with her daughter Gina, And she had still a tough time of it for another three years. She worked for Life and Vogue and McCall's and the New Republic, and she got fired from a couple of those and (laughs) quit another one because they were cutting her copy. And she wanted it her way, and that's what makes her such a compelling subject. Oh, yes. You mentioned Pauline Kael's daughter, Gina James. She appears in the film and provides meaningful context. I read that initially she was reluctant to take part in the film. How did you persuade her to come on board, Rob? Gina is uh, very much her own person. She worked for her mother in her early life from her late teens and 20s, and she was her mother's typist. Pauline didn't type or actually drive a car. So Gina, I think, had a difficult time in some ways growing up with a mother who was a critic, and I think she's always been sensitive to criticism of her mother. There are a lot of people who don't like Pauline and a lot of people who think Pauline was full of herself and wrong about a lot of movies, if you can be wrong. I don't really even agree with that word, but... Gina was there with Pauline for her whole life. So I knew I had to have her in the film. And the first thing I did was I picked up the phone and called her and went up from New York to Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and introduced myself and more or less asked for her blessing to make the movie. And she didn't give it to me. But I just decided to start anyway. And I kept her abreast of what I was doing. And I showed her an early rough cut. And after a while, I think she could see that I wasn't going to do just a hit job on her mother. The reason I made the film is because I loved Pauline's writing, so it was never going to be that. But I do show the aspects of her mother that were controversial and that there were filmmakers who really had trouble with Pauline. But Gina eventually shared these great personal photos of her mother and her family and then sat down for a couple of interviews and also shared these home movies that she had from the Berkeley years in the late 50s of Pauline hosting parties at her house, and they're just an amazing part of the film. Gina herself had not seen them. I rented a projector, and we watched them together. They show Pauline kind of drinking and smoking with friends, and it just gives the audience, I think, such a great sense of what that life was like. Well, Pauline Kael's dislike for certain actors and directors seemed deeply personal at times and irrational. She may have been the only critic unimpressed with Meryl Streep. Her writing about Meryl Streep could veer far away from Streep's performance. Meryl Streep is not among the dissenting voices in your documentary, but you do address some of those whom Pauline Kael attacked. Would you talk about how you chose the creatives whom we see on film, both those 
who are indebted to her and those who were hurt by her. I knew I didn't want to just have people who Pauline wrote positively about because that would be boring. There are people who, like Ridley Scott, I found a a recording that he did with another interviewer specifically about Pauline, and it was just from a couple of years ago. And it was when Blade Runner was re-released, and he was still upset about the review Pauline wrote about the original Blade Runner in 1982. So you can see what kind of an effect she had on some people. Meryl Streep, Pauline did write positively about as well, but she did almost seem to kind of have a personal bent. I think she thought Meryl Streep's technique was too ever-present in a way and that you could always watch the wheels turning. I think that was more or less Pauline's opinion. There's a scene in my movie with David Lean that I found archival footage, and uh, he's talking about Pauline and the things that he said about his movie Ryan's Daughter from the early 70s, and he himself says that he didn't make a movie for 14 years after that encounter with Pauline, so that's pretty dramatic. There are a lot of examples like that, but there are also great examples of people who wrote to Pauline kind of fan letters almost, like Carol Burnett and even Marlena Dietrich. I have kind of a scene in the movie, too, where we see all these letters, and I had them voiced by actors. So there's a letter from Steven Spielberg and Gregory Peck and a lot of others, and shows the kind of influence she had that I think doesn't exist today. Quentin Tarantino was a fan. Yes, yes, and he's uh, he was eager to talk about her. We interviewed him at his house in his uh, screening room, and he's very vocal about Pauline and in saying that she was more or less his film school and that he would go to the bookstore when he had no money when he was 15 and read her book and put it back on the shelf and come back another time when he could read it more because he didn't have enough money to buy it. David Russell is also in my film, and he read her as a young person and I think they just felt that she had such a strong vision, and that's what they wanted to do in movies, is have their own vision. And in some way, maybe reading Pauline helped them find it. Mm. You talked about her visceral response to film and loving sitting in a movie theater. It was especially powerful the way you depicted the American New Wave, and particularly the impact of Bonnie and Clyde. That was really the first film in the American New Wave, and that was also Pauline's big break. She wrote this huge, long piece on Bonnie and Clyde for the New Republican. They rejected it, and then she offered it to The New Yorker as a spec piece, and uh, they published the whole thing and then hired her about a year later. She really saw things in that movie that other people didn't see, and the movie was initially panned by many critics, and Pauline's piece was published, and... There started to be people reevaluating it. It was actually re-released. It did a lot for Warren Beatty's career, too, who was also the producer. And that comes back later in my film because she ended up working for Warren Beatty for a few months in Hollywood and giving up criticism to try to make movies. In the film, the writer Lily Analick says of Pauline Kael, her reviews were as expressive as a short story or a sonnet. How did Kale turn reviews into an art form? That's the magic of creation, isn't it? I mean, sometimes you just don't know how they do it with good artists. But with Pauline, she really put all of herself into it. She had such a foundation of literature in her life and books, and she would read great authors and poets, and not just one book, but all of their books. She would read Proust and Dylan Thomas and... Henry James, and read through all their works. And by the time she got to writing about movies, I mean, movies were fun for her. Mm -hmm. Movies were something that was a release from literature in a way. She loved literature, but movies come to you. You have to come to a book. But she put all of that absorption in art and literature that she already had, and it poured out onto the page. She always knew she wanted to do something that was personal and that was immediate and describing her feelings and her initial response to a movie and not working from a theory or some preset ideas. I was intrigued to learn from the documentary that she was dissatisfied with the academic tone of her early reviews. How did she change her approach? What became the art form was, in fact, writing that was 
quite conversational. She always talked about wanting to try to make the writing more conversational and wanting her reviews to be more like the discussions that she had with friends after seeing a movie. They were way beyond that. There's an understanding of the way the world works, of the psychology of the characters, of how the movie connects to history, her piece on Citizen Kane, Raising Kane. Mm -hmm. She talks about all the great newspaper movies of the 30s that it came out of and Herman Mankiewicz's relationship to William Hearst that was the fuel for the story. And she made connections. She did it really better than anyone else and in her own way. It's not to say she didn't have influences. She's, she talked about being influenced by James Agee, who she read in the 40s growing up, who was a more personal film critic. But she took it to a whole nother level. And, and also she came of age professionally in the 60s when everything was opening up. Mm-hmm. And I think that had something to do with it also. Rob, I must congratulate you on that editing of this film. Thank you. It is so clever, and it adds a lot of excitement to viewing the documentary. Would you talk about how you use excerpts from movies to help tell the story of Pauline Kael? Yes, I always knew from the time I started making the movie that I wanted to try to tell her story through pieces of other movies because I didn't want to make a dry film about a film critic. It's a portrait, and my only goal was really to make her come alive. And because she was so immersed in art and culture and movies, the best way for me, I thought, to do that would be to use pieces of other movies. So there are a lot of examples in my movie. For instance, when she turned down an advertising copywriting job because she knew if she accepted it, she would be stuck there for maybe the rest of her career and she wouldn't be able to really do what she wanted to do. I use a shot from the apartment where Jack Lemmon is given a promotion and is walking into the office and the guy is putting his name on the door. The quote from Pauline was, I knew that when they put my name on the door, I had to quit because uh, I would be there for the rest of my life possibly. But there were a lot of examples like that and tried to use the clips in a justifiable way that were connected to the era of Pauline's life. People always ask, how did I get the rights to use them? Well, I used them through fair use and went through a good fair use law firm and had to have more or less everything approved. You can only use as much as you need to use for the point you're making. That's sort of the tenet of fair use law, but it really helped me make a richer movie, I think. Rob Garver is the director of What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kael. The film is streaming on Amazon Prime and Tubi. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., pianist and composer Malik Jandali. His new recording continues Jandali's quest to honor the heritage of his Syrian homeland. City Lights producer is Summer Evans, Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.